Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, June 1st, the Walk of Shame edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. And June is still not back from her vacation. So today we have with us a very special guest, Ross Douthat, New York Times columnist. And you're in Connecticut, right, Ross? I am, yes. And thank you so much for having me. We are excited to have you today. So let me make an announcement before we get started. We are having a live show on June 22nd at the Bell House. We'll have a very special guest, which we're going to announce next week. But it's June 22nd. You can buy tickets at slate.com slash live. So all our New York friends, please come join us at the show. We would love to see you. All right, guys, before we jump into our topics, I want to... It's Kellyanne Conway, right? That's the, yes. that's the special guest. Absolutely. That <laughs> okay. would be awesome to I have didn't, I didn't mean Conway. to spill, but I figured people should know. <laughs> I, um, I would love to, like, I think every journalist set themselves the task of, like, I'm going to be the one who gets her to break. Do you think every journalist in America believes that? And then none of, like, even if, if Jake Tapper can't do it, who can do it? You think you could do it, Ross? <laughs> I think she's unbreakable. She's unbreakable, she's a, she's, right? a, she's a strong, powerful woman. In fact, I think all this talk of breaking her might be a little bit, you know, sexist. Are you, are you trying to goad us? Are you not I'm just, I just, you us? know, you've had me on. I figure I have to play some kind of, some kind of part. And No, I'm... I'm yeah. <laughs> so before we get started, I want to run by you guys a little domestic dilemma because my husband and I had a fight about this this morning. So... One of my kids' teachers is having a baby, and they're having a baby shower, and we happen to have this lovely jumper in the attic, which was labeled boy's jumper. She's having a girl, as my son informed me. It's like gray with blue polar bears on it. Is it literally labeled? Does it like have the words boy's jumper on it? Unfortunately, the little tag says boy's jumper on it, which I didn't notice, but my son noticed. Okay, Okay. but you could you could. I just want all the context. You want all the context. You could rip that out, but it's like you know, it's like a soft gray with blue polar bears. Okay, and so so I thought, um, I thought, well, it's not. We got to buy a girl thing because it's her first child, and people are just strange about that. And my husband thought that was just completely, completely preposterous. Like, this is a beautiful thing we have in our home. It's brand new. Like, why can't we give it to her? So he has a point. But then I asked him, if it were a pink jumper, (laughs) would you tell me I should give it to her if she's having a son? No, he obviously wouldn't. No, right? Yeah. 
like that's the secret of gender neutral baby clothes. They're all basically boys gender boys baby clothes. Well, how did he answer? He, <laughs> I think I won that one. He was like a little he was like I mean admittedly it was early in the morning, but he was like a little flummoxed. But the thing is so what? I win on the kind of philosophical point, but I'm still wrong. Like we should we should still give it to the girl because it's fine to give it to the girl. So like on the actual practicalities of it, I'm wrong even though in the kind of ideology philosophy I'm right. The thing that should happen is we should give the pink jumper to the boy, but nobody would ever do that. Can you cut out the tag cut the baby in half and cut out the tag and then it would be okay yeah it would be okay she just would never know that's what it's all about she you know just she needs to think that you bought her something new ross would you ever give the would anyone give the pink thing to a boy you wouldn't right nine times out of ten no if it were the kind of family that prided themselves on their hyper gender neutrality um and i have known such families then i would no, I, st- I probably still wouldn't be brave enough to do it. But but you could imagine a family that you knew that were extremely proud of themselves for being ready and willing to dress their male child in pink. Right. Right. In which case, I suppose you could give the pink to a boy. That's that's the only circumstance I could imagine. Yeah, it just just bothers me at some place in my bones. So um, full disclosure, um, when I heard that Ross was going to come on the show, which I was really excited about, I also happened to be at my daughter's debate tournament. So I was in that mind set. And so the way the show is designed, it's kind of like three, there's a couple of general topics. It's not our usual sort of thing straight from the news. So just so you know, so we're going to debate slightly bigger topics, which are are a little little, uh, off the news, which I'm very excited about because we do that so rarely. Are we going to have a resolved like some some outrageous yes. statement Res- that we have a- to defend no matter what. <laughs> Wait, so I just want to state for the record that Hannah was, I believe, like a uh, high school national champion debater. Is that correct, Hannah? Yeah, but I would just like to state for the record that that was a long time ago. So. <laughs> no, it never it never leaves you. <laughs> okay, well, let's get started. Our first one: um, a high school senior who's forbidden to walk at graduation because she is pregnant. Pro life groups defend her. Uh, I don't know that we're going to talk about who's right, but we're going to talk about that situation. Um, Second, we're going to talk about do the girls of the Hannah Horvath generation secretly regret the sexual revolution? And third, did the left cause the alt-right? These are a little like resolved. The left caused the alt-right, but still, they'll be fun. (laughs) Um, And then in our Slate Plus segment, we are going to talk about the criticisms of Hillary Clinton. Um, She has been talking about the election, and she's been criticized basically for not saying I'm sorry enough. So is it sexist? Is this something that we ask of men? So we'll get to that at the end for our Slate Plus listeners. So let's go to our first topic. Maddie Runkles is an 18-year-old senior senior at a conservative Christian school in Maryland. She's pregnant. She said that she broke the school pledge, which is that students sign a vow to protect my body by abstaining from sexual immorality. And the school's punishing her by forbidding her from walking on graduation day in June. So... Let's start like this. I don't think we can talk about. So the pro-life groups have come to her defense. One question is like, whose side you take, the the school side or the pro-life side? Um, That's a little easy. So I think maybe we'll start soon. Maybe we'll start a step before that and say whose side is more defensible, the school side or the pro-life side? First, I want to read to you what David Hobbs, the school administrator, said. You don't want to create a celebration that makes other young ladies feel like this is something they can get away with. This is a good thing. 
So, Ross, let me start with you. Do you think the school is being consistent? Like, does, does the school have a defensible position here? Uh, yeah, I think the school has a consistent and defensible position. Um, they have a code of conduct that's rooted in Christian morality. Um, they're, you know, you you can imagine a very different violation of a very different honor code or code of conduct that would also result in someone not being allowed to walk at graduation. And there is, I mean, I, I'm assuming that this is an evangelical school. There is the a concept that sort of shows up in Catholic lingo a lot called giving scandal, um, with the idea being that, you know, there's sort of sort of public celebrations of um, sort of immorality and so on have second order effects on the community. Um, so you don't, you know, we get into this in the intra-Catholic debates about whether divorced and remarried people should take communion. There's sort of the first order question of whether they should take communion. And then there's a second order question of what effect does that kind of public act have on the community? What does it say about how seriously the Catholic Church takes marriage and so on? So, yeah, I think the defensible, coherent position here is that this is a statement about how seriously the school takes, um, you know, rules against having sex before you're married, which doesn't mean that they're right. I'm just, you asked for the defense, is it defensible? And Yeah, I'm asking if it's defensible. I mean, that kind of position depends on shame, right? It depends on shame. Like, essentially, if you take the kind of what message does it send to the community, um, the message it sends to the community requires you to believe in a concept of shame. Yes, but I would say you don't want to, I wouldn't lean too exclusively on the concept of shame because it's also just about sort of, the there's just a question of sort of example setting, right? That you are in effect shaming this girl by not allowing her to walk, yes, but you're also by allowing her to walk, you are you are sort of saying to the hundreds and hundreds of people gathered that this is completely normal and okay. And when we say that we're against it, we don't really mean that very seriously. Right. Because, you know, I mean, if she let's say she cheated, let's say that this girl, you know, ran a cheating ring that helped her helped a bunch of her students cheat on 17 different tests or something like imagine a different a different violation of the honor code. If if she did something that was that everyone agreed was bad like that and then there were no consequences for it, you would be sending a message that the school didn't actually take its code against cheating very seriously. So what you're saying is that The Scarlet Letter is a book about example setting, not shame, right? No, The Scarlet Letter is, I mean, it's both, but The Scarlet Letter is a more extreme form of shaming than not allowing someone to walk in her graduation, don't you think? I don't know. You're you're a high school girl. You've worked your whole, you know, your whole life for this. You have made a pretty big life choice based on the values of your community, right? Like you screwed up. I mean, I can defend the other side too (laughs) if you want me to get into that. But you're asking me to, to, to play, to take the school side. In the school side, you would say, look, graduation is a big deal, but it's a one-time thing. She's not being there held up for shame the way Hester Prynne was. She's not standing, you know, in front of the townspeople. She's not forced to be, you know, dress in Handmaid's Tale style red or something. She's having one 
moment of privilege and celebration taken taken away from her. It's a punishment. It fits the crime. It's not permanent shaming. That's that's what I think you would say. I actually think shaming would be better accomplished by letting her walk down the aisle because the thing is its own shame in that community. Like she's going to Bob Jones University. Um, so so in fact, I, it seems to me that is she going to Bob Jones University? She is. She's applied to Bob Jones University, and that's where she wants to go. So um, so in a sense, I think they should have let her walk because the pregnancy it's is a source of shame. I mean, that would have been a better way to accomplish kind of show the community that we think that this is wrong. Because it doesn't seem to me that punishment of not graduating makes a lot of sense to me. Well, is she not graduating or is she not being allowed to walk? She's not being allowed to walk. She's graduating. Huh. Yeah. She's yeah. not being allowed to walk. So she is getting right. I mean, so there she... was a kid. I mean, I've known people in different various contexts who have graduated but not been allowed to walk as a punishment for some specific offense that was not sexual. I've never attended a school that punished anyone for <laughs> anything anything sexual. I mean, the problem with that no, form of punishment... I, I, that's, no, that's not true, but you know what I mean. <laughs> The problem with that form of punishment is that it's it it can if if your standard for who breaks the who breaks the honor code is that you have concrete proof that someone broke the honor code in the form of a pregnancy, then really only women could be punished for it. Um, I mean, yes. I suppose that I, in in our society there isn't a universe where they would actually find out who's having sex because in fact teen pregnancy is higher in evangelical you know areas with uh, people who. Say, uh, who call themselves evangelical um, uh, or born again than it is in other parts of the country. Uh, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have a school just looking to see whether people are having sex. So really, the only way they could tell is if someone got pregnant and kept the baby. Right. And this is, I think, and this points to, you know, a significant challenge for, I think, Christian or any sort of socially conservative institution in a kind of, you know, post feminist revolution world, which is to say, is it is it actually possible to have what you might call sort of gender neutral responses to sexual sin? Um, and I think I think it's a sort of important and necessary question, because I think one of the, you know, the totally reasonable critiques of social conservatism in all its varied forms that was made was that, you know, it basically just maintained double standards in which um, you had sexual rules, but women were punished more for disobeying them than men. I mean, that can be overstated to some extent. Men, too, could develop bad reputations in the pre-1960s world, but clearly, clearly women bore the brunt of it. And so, yeah, I think the issue with pregnancy is precisely that. Is it is it possible to imagine a similar punishment for um, the boy or the man. Um, and I mean, I don't know. In this case, do we know who the father is? is she says the I father's not a student. A, at the she says he's not, he's a, not student, a student. So, yeah, we don't know who right. the father is, but she says yeah, he's not a student. I, I mean, it's certainly the case that abstinence only sex education, which is what um, the school pushes, is not does not offer a future in which, um, you know, consequences are gender neutral. Women will always bear those consequences more. Well, they'll always bear the consequences. I mean, women will always bear the consequences of pregnancy itself more. The question is whether if you're trying to create a social order in which you are, you know, a kind of moral ecosystem in which people feel shame for having sex before marriage or having kids outside of wedlock and so on, whether you could essentially shame men um, in ways commensurate to shaming women? And maybe the answer is no, again, because of sort of the very public 
nature of pregnancy. But you do have, I mean, in our society, outside of sort of religious contexts, we wrestle with this a lot, like sort of in, you know, we tend to think of it in sort of legal and juridical ways. But like, how do you go after deadbeat dads, right? How do you make sure that men are paying child support and so on? All of these are secularized versions of wrestling with the same basic question, which is that, you know, when men and women have sex, the consequences for women are very or, visible or women, in a way that they are not for men. And maybe men are just impervious to shame. I mean, a lot of the social changes of the last 40 years seem to suggest that men are not easily ashamed. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I think a lot of the social changes of the last 40 years have removed sources of shame for men as well as women. And that in certain ways, I mean, I guess this sort of, you know, this is what you expect the conservative to say, but there are ways in which men, even though women in certain ways suffer more under more shame-based regimes, there are also ways in which because men have sort of weaker consequences to begin with for sexual misbehavior, if you lift the weight of shame, men end up in a kind of sort of scot-free position that they weren't in before. Um, and some of that just has to do less with sort of issues of whether they're, you know, feeling bad about things and more about whether they're expected to marry the girl that they got pregnant and so on, um, which is, I guess, less about shame than just sort of straightforward taking responsibility. That's where I think the broader view of the school is in some ways more interesting than the broader view of the pro-life community, um, because the pro-life community takes the position it always takes, which is like life above everything else, right? Like we just want this baby to be born. That's all we care about. Um, and the school is actually um, the school is actually getting at what is the real sociological problem, um, and particularly in places that are that are that identify as strongly evangelical, which is that women have babies that they can't support and that the fathers have no place in and that actually ruins their future in the long run. Um, so in a way, like the school is the school is setting a better precedent than the pro-life community, which famously just cares about the life and nothing else. Right. Um, you know, doesn't the pro-life does, community doesn't is... much concern themselves about what happens after this baby is born. Right. I mean, the pro-life community does, you know, t t that's it's partially a slur to say the pro-life community doesn't care about what happens in the sense that, you know, if you go to the crisis pregnancy centers that liberals always hate, they spend a lot of time and energy supplying sort of, you know, materials to help women <laughs> take care of their babies in the first six months to a year. And, and you know, there's a whole realm of the pro-life movement sort of dedicated to helping the new mothers who do choose to keep their babies. But if you live in a world where the broader moral ecosystem around sex and marriage and childbearing has dramatically changed and where the kind of, you know, Judeo-Christian New Testament sexual ethics, whatever you want to call it, where that model has basically collapsed. Um, the pro-life movement is sort of, it. it's the one piece of that worldview that still retains a lot of intuitive power, I think. Like lots and lots of people, you see this in opinion polls, lots and lots of people who don't think there's a problem with having sex outside of marriage, who don't think there's a problem with having kids outside of wedlock, who don't have a problem with same-sex marriage or anything else, are still troubled by and uncomfortable with abortion. So the pro-life movement sort of retains this power. Um, but its challenge is that it can sort of sort of fight the pro-choice side to a standstill in certain ways, but it doesn't necessarily have a path to sort of rebuilding the broader cultural structures, whatever those might be in our new era, 
that would you know that that would make it that would make sort of the the pro-life cause more naturally embedded in everyday sexual experience. I think it's worse than that. I think it's kind of a fake it's like a it's like a fake moralism in the same way ethno-nationalism is a fake moralism. It's like a thing to rally around which seems very clear and very easy to understand and very kind of intuitive and visceral um, but which actually mm-hmm. does great damage to the larger moral problem um, which is like like uh, I mean you could call it kind of on the left and the right like a push to plan families, like make it important to have family come at the time when family should come, um, which is both a feminist cause and a conservative cause and something people should rally around. And I think focusing on pro-life kind of gets in the way of that. Um, um, Well, this was the argument. There was a group of of sort of Republicans and conservatives in the 70s who made this argument. And I mean, there was sort of a racist version of this argument, which was that you know, um, being pro-life got in the way of the need to keep minority populations under control. And then there was a sort of, you know, suburban white conservative version of the argument, which was that you needed to have abortion rights because even good girls got in trouble sometimes and you didn't want them to have kids outside of wedlock. I mean, the problem with calling it a a fake issue, though, is that, um, you know, the importance of a harmonious social order and people having children when they're ready to have children. All those things are good, but, you know, killing unborn children is still wrong on a level that that I think, from a pro-life perspective, reasonably trumps those sort of let's plan out our society in all these ways. If the way to plan out your society in all those ways involves killing a million children in the womb every year, then your plan okay, but is so how do you... rotten at its foundation. Except that the pro-life movement, as it's constructed, actually creates more abortions than, say, the system in Germany, which is much more sexually open. You want us to stop, Verlin. Sorry. One but also, more. I'm like, this conversation is so weird. What happened to just staying out of my vagina? No, let's let it. Let's let it keep going. Let's get it. Keep so going. I. So you know that, like in Germany, they they have a slightly different system, which which involves a lot more openness, right? Like it's absolutely clear the point at which you cannot have an abortion. It's 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 very abortions are very accessible, so is contraception, and so is a certain kind of realism about sexuality. I know this all sounds very liberal, but like to me, that's just obviously better. It, it leads to fewer abortions. It leads to kind of more sort of openness and kind so of realism why, so why about teenage sexuality. And we just don't do it because of the pro-life movement. No, 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 no. Why? But why then why don't states like why aren't states like New York and California? Why don't they have lower abortion rates than the rest of the country? If the sort of liberal social model for abortion brilliantly actually reduces abortion rates, why do liberal states have higher abortion rates in the U.S. than conservative states? In general, do they have higher rates? I don't actually know that they do yes. have higher rates. I yes. know they New have York, more the, abortions. The, the, the deep blue states. The deep blue states have much higher rates, not always much, but certainly general. Basically, basically the way it works is there is sort of a there is a workable um, red social model, you might say, mm-hmm. that still exists in the high plains states, Mormon Utah, parts of the upper Midwest, and so on. And there's a workable blue social model that seems to exist in parts of Europe and sort of upper middle class. Um, you know, upper middle class blue America. Um, the red social model 
has less sexual freedom and fewer abortions. The blue social model has slightly more abortions and more sexual freedom. Both of them seem relatively stable. And then you have the sort of worlds of social decay and collapse from inner city to sort of parts of the um, parts of the evangelical South and the Bible Belt and so on, where in the blue states you have very high abortion rates and high out-of-wedlock childbearing going hand-in-hand. And in the red states, you have lower abortion rates because there is this sort of pro-life pressure. Um, But then you have high divorce rates, high out-of-wedlock birth rates, and so on. Um, But it's not as simple as as sort of liberals have this figured out and the pro-life... Okay, but I I wouldn't say liberals have it figured out. That's not my argument. I don't think liberals have it figured out. I think neither side has it figured out. Well, Germans have it figured out, you you were suggesting. I know, but Germans are... are, um, Germany also has restrictions on abortion that would not be permissible under Roe v. Wade. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like there are permissions on abortion. There's certain understanding about sexuality and just kind of like the importance of family and how children are raised. Those are fairly conservative ideas, which maybe are missing in the blue states. And then and in the red states, maybe abortions are lower because access is so difficult. Um, and so and that so too. and so 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 there isn't a kind of what I'm arguing for is a cultural norm where like each side has to give up some things, you know. Right. Um, I mean, look, I will give up. I mean, because I'm pro-life, I I will give up. And this is maybe, as we were saying, sort of the sociological flaw in the pro-life movement. If things if if real restrictions on abortion were on the table, there is there is lots that I would give up. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is in these debates, the pro-choice side says, well, why won't you just agree to our sexual model, which we claim will reduce abortion rates? And of course, we're not going to have restrictions on abortion. Like I would trade I would trade any any family planning regime you want for major restrictions on abortion. But I don't think you would actually make that trade. So we have a case study in front of us, right? Like, I just question when you say it's a stable social model in the red states, you know, you might cite a school like this that feels like, you know, there's a coherent moral system. And yet this 18-year-old girl just had her whole life fucked up because she just did a thing that teenagers do. And I guess I don't understand what your solution is to this problem. Is it to bring shame back? Like, I I don't, you know, like, is it to, you know, like, start teaching abstinence, non-abstinence only sex education in evangelical schools? Like, what within your worldview? I don't think there's a lot of evidence that what's taught in schools matters that much. There's a ton Um, of evidence that it matters. That's actually not true. No, no. Most of, I mean, if you read like, I think it's Karen Luker, her last book on sex education, the, you know, the data on abstinence versus non-abstinence programs, to the extent that they matter to teen sexual behavior, it's very much on the margin. What matters is sociological context, family stability, money, social norms, and so on. And those you know, what happens in the school is sort of an emanation of those, but you don't fix, like, you know, again, if you could just fix out of wedlock childbearing by having liberals run sex ed programs in schools, then, you know, greater New York City would have a very different landscape in terms of abortion rates, out of wedlock births, and so on than it does. Although teen um, pregnancy problems, is, you know, they're down. hard to fix. They're hard to fix. And if you take, I mean, this is the issue, right? And then if you take any particular given person i mean in any in any social model um people people suffer that's sort of the nature of well, <laughs> the nature of society right i mean and and just for the record i think the pro life group is right to defend this girl because she's operating in a context where 
Um, you know, I don't know where exactly she is in Maryland, but abortion is widely available, and it's a serious and completely understandable temptation for anyone who finds themselves in that kind of, you know, potentially desperate seeming situation. And resisting that temptation is a more is a is a heroic act on a scale that's more significant, I think, than the sin of breaking breaking your school's code and um, having sex before marriage. Let's just answer the question of what. So you think the pro-life groups were right. I agree with you, but for different reasons. I just think it was a courageous choice to have the baby uh, totally outside of more language of more moral morality and sin. I think it was a courageous choice of hers and um, and she shouldn't be punished for it. But you aren't outside the language of morality if you're praising her for a courageous choice. Um Yes, I am. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, I'm, I'm praising her for a personal the language of morality. Okay, so a courageous choice, a, a personal choice for, for, for making a personal choice that was important to her and her parents, who supported her having the baby. It's something that she wanted to do, something that her parents supported. She knew that she would pay a high price publicly for that decision, and she did it anyway. So it's more a sign of personal courage than it is kind of a fealty to her, you know, to a moral code. Which I don't actually know what her position is about the moral code anymore. <laughs> I guess I don't think uh, that the the pro-life groups are coming from that f- much of a different place in the school. I think that that in different ways they are both operating in a in a shame-based world and I uh, do not think as Ross seems to think that that is the solution to fixing society. Right. So you take neither. You'll just defend neither. No, I mean you, of course you let the girl walk. I, I mean I think in this case I'm I'm you know closer to the to the views of the But what if it were I know we're going on too long. <laughs> but what if it were a different what if it were a case where um, you know, the issues in question were sort of obvious li- basic liberal values. Like this is – it's not about abortion. It's a guy who is credibly accused of sexually assaulting someone in, uh, you know, in, in – Yeah, in, that's, on, not, on, that's, on, that's on, not an equivalent then, example because sexual assault is illegal everywhere. So having – this is their particular moral code. So it can't be a guy who committed a crime. Sexual assault is a crime. So well, no, but he, he shouldn't but be let's imagine a world. Let's find. Let's imagine a world in which sexual assault was no, – was, was legal or where the I'd rather not, not imagine that world <laughs> as we would want them to be. Would you? <laughs> no, well, but let's take, we can think experiment. of an example. What I'm trying to get you to, to do is admit that you would support shaming someone if, you know, you would support acts that would lead to shame if if it fit into your moral paradigm, right? You just don't you don't think what the girl did was wrong. You don't think sex before marriage is wrong, so you don't want to see her any shame accrue to that choice, which is fine. But that's different from the question of whether shame itself okay. is a bad thing. I'm going to reframe your question in a way we can answer. Not a sexual assault, but a Title IX violation, right? So this is not a guy who who is like assaulted someone by by kind of regular legal standards. This is someone who has assaulted someone by Title IX standards. But why are you no? Why are you going to this bureaucratic language? Because Title that's IX, parti- no, 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 no. You think because- sexual? You think sexual assault is wrong in? Independent of what Title IX says. No, the American government thinks sexual assault wrong. No, I'm trying to give an example that's better for you. I don't care what the American government thinks. I'm interested in your moral vision. Yeah, I know. 
to, to your point, Ross, yeah, I don't think that like the world should be without shame. I think that would be a sort of insane. But I but no, I do no, think no, no, no. But wait, I don't think give wait, 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 wait. Don't give Ross shame. The world should not be without shame. No, I've won. I've won, and I'm afraid the crime. Republic of Gilead has been established here in this podcast. <laughs> no, we established like their social agreements. Those aren't shame based. They're social agreements which keep social order, which prevent crimes. That's very different from a world. No, which that's is based cra- but but on, you don't but you don't possibly believe that because in a society, if we lived in a Soviet style society or a Nazi society where you thought the law was ridiculous and ruthless and cruel and totalitarian and you had no respect Uh for it, you would still believe in a moral order independent of those like if all social norms collapsed, you would still think it was wrong to rape someone. And you would want the person who raped someone to like if someone who raped someone came to dinner, came to your family dinner. You would want them to feel shame. Yeah, I think. I, well, you know, I, I, okay, they should so, feel shame because shame sometimes is good. But shame should not be. Here's my uh, short. Shame, shame should not be shame, selectively deployed against women and not men. I completely agree. <laughs> shame but that should doesn't not mean be, shame is bad. Shame should not be the driving moral force in your society. The driving moral force in your society should be striving towards the good, towards the better. And I think that would get us to a place where we could all eventually agree. Listen, how about this? We'll end it like this. Listeners, if you have views on shame-based societies <laughs> and whether, like, no, seriously. All whether, societies are curious. shame-based societies. Yes. Whether you think all societies are shame-based societies, I actually do not believe that that's true I don't anymore. either. But if you do believe that that's true or have a defense of shame, which does serve some purpose, please write us and let us know. I am actually genuinely curious. And think hard about what your moral standards are and what Ross is asking about sexual assault. It's an interesting question. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, let's move on to our second topic. We've spent so much time on the first one that hopefully we can do this one faster, or maybe we'll just have to reduce it to two. So, do the girls of the Hannah Horvath generation secretly regret the sexual revolution? So, I Ross, I'm going to try and do justice to your description of of girls and the universe that it um, portrays for us, which I think is a totally no. I actually think it's a it's it's like a brilliant sociological reading of girls. So. The way Ross describes girls, and I know we talk about this show a lot, not as many people have seen it as you think, but you'll you'll recognize from the description the world we're talking about, even if you've never seen the show, that essentially uh, the, 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 the young women in girls who are living in Brooklyn and are a group of friends, they live in, in what you described as a post-patriarchal society, right? There aren't there, – there isn't a sense that like the men provide some kind of – architecture or social order. And the women are lost in this world, not just lost, but but unhappy. Uh, they don't really know what to do with themselves. Is that a, is that a fair description? Well, and, and the men. Yeah. So the fall of patriarchy. I'll, I'll just read in certain ways. The men are more I think the men are more lost in certain ways, with the with the exception of Ray. Probably who's older. Yeah. Um, but the, but the men are at least as lost as the women. Okay. The men are all on all end up as the main men end up as as um, dr- drug addicts. Two of the major love male love interests. Um, right. Is Adam a drug addict? Uh, yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. That's a, 
Right. Uh, no, Adam the, and Marnie's Marnie's fun. Charlie, Charlie, and his oh, hair. That's, right, yeah. that's right. Yeah, not Adam, but Charlie, and yeah. So yeah. here's your your description. The fall of patriarchy had basically happened. The world had irrevocably changed, and nobody knew what to do next. That's interesting. And then you write, girls, the mess, it made a mockery of the official narrative of social liberalism, in which prophylactics and graduate degrees and gender equality are supposed to lead smoothly to health, wealth, and high-functioning relationships. And you are arguing that, in fact, none of that happened. On girls, yeah. I think girls is a little more extreme than reality. I think in reality, prophylactics, higher education, and so on are are more effective than the show. I think the show is a, it's a, it's a deliberate, well, not exactly deliberate, but it is a caricature of a reality that's not quite as much of a mess as girls <laughs> makes it seem. I, I would put it slightly differently, which is I think so many of the young women creators create doppelgangers who are much more dysfunctional than they are. And I think it's a fantasy about mm-hmm. your 20s in the same way, you know, when people when people talk about hookup culture and sort of post-20s datings, I think there's for some reason kind of a, there's an indulging in a fantasy about how messed up your 20s are and how lost people are. And I'm not sure why that fantasy exists because I'm too old to understand it. But it it is actually not statistically true. Like Hannah's and all her friends and her generation, like all you have to do is wait 10 years and and it, and, and it does lead to health, wealth right. and high functioning relationships, like way more than it ever did. Um, so 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 it's just like it's just kind of a, a 10 year fantasy that people need. And I don't know why they need it. I don't know if it's because they're too grown up as kids to begin with or if they're like it's an organization kid problem where, where like when they're little and young, they're way too I, programmed. And so they need a tiny little space to be totally dysfunctional and fucked up. I'm just not sure like what that fantasy is about. I'm just not sure. I think there has been, though, a s- something of a shift sort of since since the Great Recession and the rise of the Internet. I, I-, I feel like in the late 1990s and early 2000s when I was in college and when David Brooks was writing about the organization kid and so on, there there was a stronger sense that all of this sort of was working smoothly and then when the economy fell apart and sort of the internet scrambled people's social relations, things became messier. And I think you see that in some of the differences between sort of younger millennials and their patterns of behavior and older millennials. It's still not the kind of – I agree. It's not the kind of mess you have on girls in part because the internet seems to have made people less likely to misbehave in certain ways like People sort of enact fantasies online and have less sex in reality. Um, that that seems to be a thing that you see in the data. Um, but but I think that I like how you said that, Ross. Like just so nobody could ever think it ever crossed your mind. You're like, it's a thing you see in the data. That was good. <laughs> it's a thing you. See. I mean, look, you know, my my life my life is pretty boring. It's it's actually yeah. disappointingly boring. But yeah, I, I think that there's been a shift where girls is a little truer to reality to the experience of sort of post crash millennials than it was to the experience of people growing up in 1998. Okay, Noreen, step I was in. T- Noreen, <laughs> speak. As, speak for the, speak as, for as, the generation. Yeah, for the for the girls' generation. I was um, very taken with the first column you wrote about girls, actually, which was memorably entitled, I Love Lena. Um, and you talked about something that you called, I think, expressive individualism, yeah. right? Which, I, th- as, as I understand it, as a member of this generation, is sort of like, we are the heirs to the values of the 60s, essentially, as children of the boomers, right? And and that so part of 
part of what was baked into our education was this idea that, you know, go back, going back to like how society should be constructed, we're not working for the good of society. We are working to become the best possible version of ourselves. And that will take a lot of exploration and we're going to make some mistakes. And we've, we've had this all said to us forever. Um, but the way you came down in that column, I believe, and I'm curious whether you still believe this, having watched the arc of the show, is that expressive individualism was getting the girls in the show exactly nowhere. It was just, you know, sort of like a, a masturbatory kind of philosophy in life and they weren't really making any progress. Um, and my my sort of like lived experience has been that that it expressive individualism for many people, you know, it takes a decade, it could take more, it could take a lifetime, but but does sort of like eventually get you towards a philosophy that is a little bit greater than yourself, whether that takes the form of a social mission, whether that takes the form of forming a family, whatever it happens, happens to be in your own life. And I think you saw that happen on Girls, actually. Like, I think... You know, I'm I'm interested in your reading of Lena Dunham as like having having some you know socially conservative leanings, whether she realizes it or not. I think Judd Apatow, I have noticed consistently in his stuff, there's always sort of a happy you know family friendly right. ending, which you saw on Girls. Um, like to me, that was so striking the way it ended with like you know literally like she's <laughs> suckling a baby on her teeth, mm-hmm. and that is like the happy ending of the show is just motherhood. Um, and and so I wonder if your original critique of expressive individualism still stands. Well, first of all, I, I mean, I don't think Lena Dunham is any kind of actual social conservative. Um, that, uh-huh. I, she, obvi- she obviously is not, <laughs> um, unless this is the most amazing double agent act since, uh, you know, um, yeah, I, I don't know what. But um, I, I think the – I do think the show, though, has – you know, in part, it's I think a, uh, just a sign of sort of how polarized we are as a culture. That this very well done, well written, well acted, interesting show and so on can inspire such different reactions from smart people who watch it. Regarding expressive individualism, like the end of Mad Men, I felt like had a much more expressive individualist ending than the ending of Girls. Hmm. Like because in the end motherhood and parenthood are, you know, they're not really acts of, exp- or they may be acts of expressive individualism. You may decide. They shouldn't be but about But they're you. the end of your life as an expressive individualist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they are. And so, in, and, and they're sort of the standard end. And they are the reason, the existence of motherhood and fatherhood and, you know, biological generation is the reason that expressive individualism I think is better as a kind of, you know, minority strain within a society rather than its dominant worldview because when it's your dominant worldview, um, kids tend to suffer for it. No, it's just it's too simplistic <laughs> a reading of it. See, but the way I read the expressive individualism in, in the show and kind of in the culture at large and kind of why this fantasy space exists is because, I mean, it's partly a feminist reading, but if you think about what happened during the period of the organization man, right – so you have basically from from like the period of Catcher in the Rye in the 50s until, you know, Portnoy's complaint, right? That's like a good 20 years where male novelists were essentially fighting for the space to be a fuck up, 
you know, to be just like yep. an extravagant, masturbatory, dysfunctional fuck up. And that space was important as a kind of resistance to the organization man. And my reading of girls is like you you have a space in it to play. Like in that space, you have different varieties of expressive individualism, some of which look incredibly selfish. And yet, like, because we have a heart for her and the characters in the show, you somehow feel like it's all going to get patched together. But it's not going to get patched together by, like, her marrying a man in a suit, like it's it, like in Girls, right? There's no Mr. Big who's going to walk into right. that scene and make everything orderly. It's just not going to happen. So, no, that's, so, that's so true. it is. So it is basically fighting. And and I and I think she does it in an interesting way because she's fighting for the space to be a screw up, like really with a baby. Like that's no joke, you know. So it's not like a little space. She really just took it like one step further by having that baby. Um, um, so, so it's basically the opposite philosophy of David David Hobbs, the administrator of the conservative school in 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 Maryland. It's like no, like it's it's a just it's like a deep acceptance of kind of human frailty and wandering, and then a sense that it's still going to be okay. You know, um, yeah. um, a resistance to, in fact, her own culture, her own like her own age group, which eventually just like buckles in and gets married and has really, really happy marriages and low divorce rates and, you know, happy child rearing and lives in its kind of protected, protected bubble of family comfort for the rest of their lives and days. So 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 in a sense, it's like it's pretty rebellious as an ending, I would say. In the, Yeah, it, it's a rebellion against against a version of that narrative, although that narrative never really shows up in girls, which is, again, why it may not be that sociologically accurate. But, none, you know, there are a bunch of sort of failed starter marriages, but nobody does what Shoshana. Sort of, what about Shoshana? Well, no, you're you right, don't have you're hopes right, for her right. marriage? <laughs> but even Shoshana's marriage, it's like it's, you know, we it's it's sort of strange. It, it has the same yeah. randomness as the other's marriages. But, yeah, Shoshana – no, you're right. Shoshana is – is sort of the character who sort of seems to be striving most towards towards that that narrative, I guess, out of the four. But we we didn't answer the the original question about regret. But... I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think since I'm the one who's sort of trying to link girls to reaction in some way, I, I, I would still answer it no. I don't think the characters on girls. I I guess my argument, going back to the patriarchy issue, is that they're they're so far beyond the sexual revolution that the idea, the the pre-sexual revolution world is so distant that we're sort of past the period where people are regretting or not regretting the sexual revolution. And to the extent, and I, I mean, I think you're right about this, Hannah, that the ending of the show, I think it's conservative in sort of a small c way, in certain ways, and that it is it does represent sort of, you know, the the end of the end of a certain kind of expressive individualism that ends when you have a baby and accepting that and so on. But no, it's not conservative in any kind of like, you know, back to white picket fence, Aussie and Harriet kind of way. It's basically sort of three women together trying to build a social order in, you know, in in the rubble of the patriarchy, you might say. Yeah, and I actually disagree. Okay. I, I think that the show, one of the things I appreciated about it is that it allows some of that regret into the space, right? Like that it allows you to both absolutely say, I would never want to roll back the clock and to sort of sit with all the complications of what that means. Like they don't, for the most part in that show, they don't have particularly fulfilling emotional love lives, right? Like you get a beautiful, actually Adam Driver ends up, you know, being the provider of some of the most... Um, 
you know, like stable, healthy relationships on that show. But but but, it you know, it's it's never a fully damning thing, right, that you can have a something screwed up and it doesn't, you know, um, change the course of your whole life. And that's what I actually appreciated about the show, that, it, that that I do think that women of this generation experience some uh, frustration with the way that that all this has played out. Yeah. But you can't ever say that because then you'd be a traitor. That's you're right that then you would be a traitor. But on the, I never on like the question I asked was loaded because this is why I don't understand regret and shame to some extent. Like when has history ever moved? Because you're not. Catholic, but like when is I'm Anna. Jewish? It's bad enough. But like when have right, yeah. when has history <laughs> ever moved? backwards like when has nostalgia ever been like a viable uh political position or realistic political position that's why i never understand the like hankering for olden days of whatever as a basis for a political position it never happens that way so it's not that history moves towards progress i think it doesn't history moves towards misery a lot of the time towards people being less happy but it never moves backwards it's just but that's actually the case for that but that's exactly the case for why looking backwards is useful because people are people are afraid to look backwards because if they think they do they're we're going to create the you know recreate the exact same set of mistakes or you know plunge us into the republic of gilead but in fact it's much safer to look back than i think liberals seem to think because precisely because the world of 1950 is never coming back Right. And whatever happens next will be new and strange and different. And so there's no reason why you can't say, look, they did these things wrong in the past, but they got these things right. And maybe we could learn some things from them without being worried that tomorrow, you know, the Inquisition will show up. I just don't have that great a sense of control over cultural history. Like you can control economic history and political history, but you just cannot control cultural history. Like there's no lessons to be learned or things. There's so few examples. Oh, what there's do you mean? so few there's... examples of successful changing of the culture, like smoking. You know, there's like two or three where people have managed in kind of large social policies. What, what to do you actually mean? I mean, look, look. I think all of these things are mediated by <laughs> economics at a deep level, but like. Hugh Hefner and Gloria Steinem in different ways both changed the culture. Like all those male authors you were talking about carving out that space, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Portnoy's complaint generation, they changed the culture. Um, this, the baby boomers changed, you know, I mean, we, we live know, in the culture the that, baby boomers made. I know, but it's not that happens kind of organically. It can't be done sort of from on high looking back and saying we made this mistake. Let's legislate so that we have a different But if we result. got enough people, no, I, I can't do it. But if I persuaded mm-hmm. enough readers of the New York Times to do it, Hannah, then well, you could it would do it actually. organically. That's the <laughs> you dream. could do it. But this does happen. I mean, look at the revolution in gay and transgender rights. You could argue that that's happened that way, right? That it started as a cultural thing, and then you know the the Justice Department got involved with with the bathroom. But that you know, is a like, good counter example. It does happen. That actually is one of the most successful examples of incredibly rapid change in 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 uh, cultural norm. That's actually a really good one. I give you that. All right guys, we got two into our debate, which I found delightful. Um, and so we're going to skip our third topic about the alt-right, um, which I'm sorry about because we didn't get to talk it gets about enough PC attention. culture. It gets enough attention. It doesn't <laughs> it need does. us. Uh, so in fact... In the um, time we've wait, had this five, this conversation, seven profiles of Richard Spencer have appeared in <laughs> exactly. liberal magazines. 
It's true. And and who who in conservative magazines? They don't really care anymore. Who's the liberal who gets profiled in conservative magazines? Oh, we're conservatives don't we don't know what we're doing anymore. So. <laughs> okay, let's do our recommendations. Noreen, what do you have this week? Um I have been paging through a coffee table book by by the photographer Lauren Greenfield. Um it's called Generation Wealth and it's sort of a basically a career retrospective. Um, dating back to the 1990s. And she has taken as her subject, I guess you could say, like, the places where money and youth obsession and money obsession meet in America. Um, so she begins in the, you know, the wealthy Los Angeles where she grew up and, and sort of turns an unsparing eye on what that culture means. And then she goes to other parts of Los Angeles and looks at the ways that, you know, people with less money also absorb these values. And then she sort of travels all through the last, you know, 30 years, basically looking at all the I think it's fair to say damage that she sees this has done, but it's also just beautiful photographs to look at, um, with the exception of the plastic surgery pictures, which are really gross and which we excerpted in New York Magazine this week. Um, but you, if you are all at all interested in how we got to sort of our celebrity money youth obsession, um, this is a super interesting document, Generation Wealth by Lauren Greenfield. That is such an interesting idea for a book, and someone should do that about the sexual revolution. Like, I don't know if it should be a conservative or a liberal, but like, if material values have sort of, you know, trickled down, and then you would say, like, sexual mm-hmm. revolution values have trickled down and have, like, wildly different effects in different classes, you could do a really good photo essay slash Lee's book about that. In fact, maybe I will. You should do it. Um, Yeah, in my next life. Okay, so I'm going to annoy people by doing this again. But on the plane home from Louisville, I read Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. I've already talked about his second book. No, it's the second book that I read. This is the first book. It's the same guy. But I swear to God that this book has changed my life. Like, it has had such, like, a wild effect on my psychology. It's like it was really it was just like going to the therapist 55 times because you just gain a certain perspective on kind of where you are in the world and everything that you've received and how everything has been constructed throughout human history. None of it is in a given, which to me makes me hopeful because it makes me feel like everything is changeable. It also gives me great nostalgia for the past, but for the hunter gatherer period. That's the period I look to, (laughs) not the 1950s, but like that brief. It wasn't brief. It was that millions and millions of years, actually the longest period in human history when everything was so much better. Anyway, uh, that's what I got for you this week. That book is really rocking my world. I'm sorry. I will not recommend a Yuval Harari book again. Harari? Really? I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm going to recommend. My recommendation is that listeners do not read read Sapiens. The the new one is Homo Deus, right? Yes. It's Sapiens, and it's by Yuval Noah Harari, and it's super uncool. And Ross, you tell us why. No, I mean, I, I... I just think he's a little he's just a, I just think he's a little bit of a huckster. Um, yeah. Which doesn't mean that some of his stuff isn't sort of brilliant and insightful. I just I think he's one of these guys. He's like, you know, I've got my one neat trick to explain all of human civilization and all of the next 2000 years and so on. But um, but that's, and I'm a sucker. Know, but but pe- Right, but people. I'm not saying you you're. And, I'm not. You know, I am I, a I sucker. I don't want to mansplain Yuval. You know, I was. I was anyway. Um, 
I guess I'll recommend, I was trying to think of something that would be sort of a like gateway drug into weird social conservatism for listeners of this podcast. <laughs> and I couldn't really come up with something. But um, one, uh, since we've been talking about sort of family issues, one book that's, I think, sort of weird and underappreciated, and maybe also the work of a huckster, but um, is a book called The Subversive Family by an English writer named Ferdinand Mount. And it's like 20 or 30 years old, so it's dated in certain ways. Um, but it's just an interesting sort of reinterpretation of the family's role in history um, that is not sort of – well, it actually touches on some of the stuff we've been talking about, about sort of the tensions between pro-lifers and social conservatives because one of the things he talks about is the tension between sort of the family – and a lot of religious traditions, which often start out sort of as anti-family, as in certain ways Christianity did in its own way and so on. Um, so, but so it's not, it's not a book that sort of fits in neatly along culture war lines, um, but it's a book about sort of the resilience of sort of the resilience of the nuclear family. It's partially a corrective to some of the arguments that we just sort of invented romance and marriage and so on in the last 200 years and that before that everybody just arranged marriages and nobody fell in love and so on. It, it argues a little bit with that point of view. Um, but it's also just an interesting book that is, um, yeah, not not a gateway drug, perfectly safe to read. Uh, the Subversive <laughs> Family by Ferdinand Mount. Excellent. All right. Well, that's our show. Once again, listeners, June 22nd at the Bell House, we are having a live show very, very soon. Go to slate.com slash live and buy your tickets. Thanks to our producer, Verilyn Williams, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, Andy Bowers, the chief content officer of Panoply, and our intern, Daniel Schrader. Thank you to Noreen, and thank you to Ross for joining us today. This was a fabulous debate. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Sure. So for Ross and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and uh, we'll see you again in a couple weeks. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.